Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I'm your co-host, Sean Mandor. And today, uh, we have a special guest from the biology department, Peter Baker. Welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Peter, we want to hear about your work, and we're excited to hear about, I believe, salmonoids. So um, why don't you start us off by telling us where you are in your program and then uh, generally uh, what you study. For sure. So I am in my second year of my master's degree. Um, I'm in Dr. Brian Neff's lab and I study the effects of thiamine deficiency, um, but more specifically on the heart of lake trout. Um, And I'm focused mainly on Lake Ontario, but it keeps expanding to the other Great Lakes. So eventually I'll be covering most of them. Um, and I'm looking at, and I'm also comparing between certain strains of lake trout to see if some are more tolerant to thymonase than others. So to follow up, I, would just, I was curious, how would you get access to some of this fish? Because I'm not in biology and I wouldn't know, do you like catch them on your own? Do you breed them? I would be curious. Are you a fisherman? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so for most of my project, we had fish in a hatchery on campus. Um, and we didn't catch these fish. We got them actually from um, a hatchery, um, an MNR hatchery, so the Ministry of Natural Resources. Um, And this was up in Chatsworth, so up near Owen Sound. So we got a bunch of fish from them, from them, trucked them down to London and then had them in the hatchery on campus. Okay, yeah, so to just uh, just to get us uh, an idea of like, you know, more about this, um, about this type of fish, can you give us an idea of like what it looks like and how it kind of differs from other fish? Yeah, that's a good question. So if you're familiar with salmonids at all, um, lake trout are um, a deep water, cold living uh, fish in the Great Lakes. Um, The fish that we had in the hatchery were quite small because we got them very young. So they're only maybe a couple inches long, Um, but they can grow to be massive. Um, I think the biggest lake trout ever caught was well over a hundred pounds. Um, and that was up north. Um, but typically, like if you were to go out fishing for lake trout, you'd probably catch them around 10 to 15 pounds. Cool. So you, so the ones you started with were really small relative to how big they could be. And you That's kind of cool. grew them and nurtured them through their life, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, okay. Okay. Based on these fish, because you were talking about um, that you wanted to look at their cardiovascular or like their hearts. Uh, do you have like a baseline for the fish or it's like because uh, how would you do that how would you know if it's different from one another yeah that's a really good question so what we did and kind of I'll give you a little bit more of the background also mm-hmm. why we're doing this as well um, so lake trout in the great lakes are suffering from a thymine deficiency um, and this thymine deficiency is coming from um, invasive prey species that have since kind of dominated um, the prey community and essentially what's going on is these prey species have a high concentration of a certain bacteria in their gut. And this bacteria produces an enzyme that breaks down thiamine. So when lake trout are eating large amounts of these fish, that bacteria, so this is a theory anyway, is that that bacteria gets incorporated into their gut where it breaks down thiamine. And so these fish aren't getting enough thiamine into their systems. So what we actually did in the lab is we, I say we, but, Previous researchers isolated that bacteria from the prey fish. And so we were able to take that bacteria and add it to their feed. And so we added the feed to our treatment group, of course, and left our control group 
with the exact same feed, but just without that bacteria. If I could ask a follow-up, because I was curious. So you said the prey species got introduced. Do you know how they got introduced? Yeah, so there's a lot of controversy on how it got introduced. And, it, and they were introduced in the early 1900s. So who knows what really happened? Um, the leading hypothesis is that they found their way in through the lock system in the Great Lakes. Um, but there's rumors out there that people were stalking these fish um, intentionally as well, but who knows what the real reason is. All right. So I'm going to ask another follow-up just because I have no idea what the lock system is. Okay. Yeah. No worries. <laughs> yeah. So the lock system is, is basically how ships kind of get in and out of the Great Lakes and into mm -hmm. the St. Lawrence River. Um, it's basically just a way to manipulate water levels. So they just, it's almost like a ladder for boats is how I describe it. Yeah. That's pretty sick. Wow. So yeah, uh, you gotta, gotta take into consider into consideration a lot of things. And when, when you're thinking about the environment of a fish, I suppose, because they, you know, unlike an animal on the ground that maybe, maybe doesn't go too far and kind of can only jump so high a fish can go everywhere in the water they can go up and down to the bottom or wherever and all the way like i don't know i i imagine that fish can go farther than 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 an animal of the similar size on the ground or, or at least a bird that could like fly all over the place um so like you kind of have like hey it's in this body of water i have, what's everything happening to this body of water and what are all the other animals doing in that body of water for us to like understand what's going on there so um yeah, I guess I wanted to follow up a little bit on this uh, the prey species idea. Um, what are the what are these prey species, and like uh, how do, how are they different? Why why are they different now? Yeah, that's a good question. So the prey species specifically are alewife and rainbow smelt, and it's it's a shame how this happened, but essentially, so lake trout were historically like the big apex predator in the Great Lakes. Like they were. Um, really important for managing prey uh, population levels and but of course humans did their thing and found out they tasted delicious and found out there were so many of them that of course they overfished them and then once their levels dropped there was no predator to monitor the prey populations right so they boomed but instead of the native prey species booming those ones that were introduced outcompeted the native prey fish and just became the most dominant fish out there. So lake trout were left with just invasive prey species to prey on. Okay, so I mean, I mean, <laughs> I feel like this is a frequent trend uh, with studying animals in the wild. Is that you know, they were doing their thing and then uh, we came along and and changed things a lot and and they didn't adapt uh, adequately or didn't have time <laughs> it wasn't wasn't so good uh what be it through climate change or or more directly like we took away their food and ate their food um so i guess my question now is uh you know you're wanting to to test uh this this theory about the thymine deficiency or thymonase deficiency um and you want to see how it impacts them um but you're trying to mimic this environment where like they've got prey or not prey or whatever they've got you're trying to trying to mimic it. I'm assuming in some way. Um, how do you how do you go about doing that? Because like we said, the environment's really big. Now you've got them here housed as like little fish, and I don't know how. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, so we we try our best to to mimic. It's really hard because we're not feeding these fish whole fish. Like we're not feeding 
our control group, um, the native species and our treatment group, all of the invasive species, uh, we had to find a way to um, make sure everyone was getting the same thing, but then the treatment group was just getting that bacteria. Um, so a study in 2005 um, actually made this diet that we used and the diet is mainly grounded up fish. So we basically sourced out hundreds of pounds of um, herring, which is a, a crayfish. And that was a lot of fun grinding that up for several months, nice and clean lab work. Um, but our, that was basically the base of our food is we had this, this herring, this ground up herring. Uh, we basically added cornstarch and a bunch of other fillers in there to make it, you know, have enough carbs, proteins, vitamins, and other nutrients in there. Um, but that was, that was as close as we could get to actually mimicking the wild food without giving them the actual fish. Uh, may I follow up on that? Uh, so you said you got tons of fish, right? Uh, I'm curious, how did you get that into the lab? Did you have room in the lab or like, how was the shipping process for that? So yeah, when I say that we, we have all this herring that we use in our food, um, we actually got frozen herring uh, from pet stores that, that people give to their, their dogs or their cats for food. And we basically took all of the stock from a bunch of pet stores in the area because um, we needed a lot of, of pounds of this food. And so it wasn't, they weren't live fish or anything. So they were frozen, we thawed them out and then we put them through the grinder um, and then into our feed. Looks like those pet stores made a lot of money that day. <laughs> Yes, yeah, we definitely made some friends. <laughs> cool. So, I mean, uh, in the end, uh, uh, I'm assuming um, they managed to eat it, even though it's not alive and they, they didn't have the hunt. Uh, the fish, they, the trout, um, they like it? Yeah, I mean, they liked it. We, um, there's a certain ingredient that's put in there and it's put in all commercial fish food um, and it's like an attractant, but it's basically, it, it stimulates them to just eat. Uh, yeah, the catnip for, for trout, the trout catnip. That's right. Yeah. Uh, cool. So um, uh, let's, yeah, let's go into a little bit more of the, like uh, the measures that you're going to be doing. So you've got the, you got your trout, you got your uh, herring, uh, the ground up and you got your special feed from, from the people who studied it before. Uh, and uh, the difference is the thymonase uh, versus not thymonase. And, then, and now you have uh, everything basically controlled. Uh, so you give it to your two groups of similar size baby fish uh, or mid-sized fish, wherever you've grown it. And then what do you do with them? Yeah, so that's right. We actually fed these fish for about nine months. Um, so they actually got quite large by the time um, we did any measurements on them. And I think some, some of our larger fish were upwards of 300 grams. Like they were quite big. Like they were fish that if you caught in the river, you'd be, you'd be proud of. Maybe if it was a different species, but because lake trout can get to 100 pounds. But um, yeah, so we, we, fed, we fed these fish the diet for nine months. And then afterwards, the first thing that we looked at was um, a whole body metric. So I didn't quite focus in on the heart at first. Um, I did this with a colleague of mine, Chris Tyrion. Um, we looked at their swim performance. So how well they could swim against a fast current and also kind of how long they could last um, at a certain speed. Um, so we basically threw them in this uh, fish treadmill, I like to call it. So it's a big tank where we have the ability to um, increase the water current. And so we increased the speed um, 
periodically every certain time period and see how long they lasted. Uh, so this fish treadmill, because I'm curious, I've never seen this before. Is this like, can you put like a bunch of fish in it or is it like one fish at a time kind of thing? You probably could put a few fish in there. And I know that some people have really big, it's called, it's called swim flumes. Um, some people have really big swim flumes in their labs where they put hundreds of fish in at once and they just kind of pick them out once they can't swim against the current anymore. But ours was just made for one fish. So we had to do one at a time and the trials didn't take too long, but yeah, just one fish. Okay. I was like, if it's one fish at a time and you have tons of fish, I'm like, man, that might take a while. <laughs> yeah, no, the trials typically only took about, I'd say 15 minutes. Um, so, it, so it wasn't terrible. Okay. Um, and I, I'm guessing like, uh, you know, you said you can vary the, the strength of the current, I guess. Um, when you first put them in there, um, I'm just kind of like imagining in comparison to like a, a, a treadmill, treadmill, like if you just jump on and, it, and, it's, and it's going, it's like impossible to get started. You have to kind of ease your way in, right? So when you, when you put them in there, um, how do you ease them in? Like, is it, is it very much like a treadmill? You just like have to turn it on slowly? <laughs> No, it's exactly right. So we start them out when there's no current. So we get them in there and actually we, we leave them there for about 15 minutes for them to acclimate anyway. Um, just so any other exterior stress doesn't influence the first however few minutes of the trial. Um, so yeah, we start them very slow as in no current and then gradually increase it. Okay. What kind of results did you end up getting? Or is that secret? Uh, no, not, not a secret. Um, so we got them and they're actually really exciting. Um, so we got that the fish raised on the thiamines diet or, or that are supposedly thiamine deficient had, um, or were worse swimmers. So they didn't swim as well as the control fish. Um, they didn't make it up to higher speeds. Um, I remember doing these trials and there were a few fish that were just, a thiamine deficiency really affects their nervous system. And you could really tell on some of these fish that they were um, ataxic, like they didn't know up from down, they were corkscrew swimming, they were kind of all over the place. Um, so it was really interesting to see that data kind of in a graph after seeing that in person. It was pretty obvious. <laughs> when, you, when you put one in, it was like that one can swim, like no problem. The other one was like basically nothing. <laughs> yeah. So there, I mean, that was definitely an extreme example, but yeah, it was in general, like we had a lot of fish in the, in that treatment group that were like that and not nearly as many in the control group. So, yeah. Hmm. So, so you'd originally mentioned that you were, you were, no, you, you start with the whole body and then you were going to focus on some like heart measures per se, but you're now also saying that it was really important for the nervous system. Are you, did you do like measures of like, uh, something to do with the nervous system and something else with the heart or something like that? No, so the nervous system is, is kind of what's been studied the most in the past, and that's where, that's really what's getting the blame for all of these issues that are going on in um, not just lake trout, but many other fish that are thiamine deficient. Everyone says, oh, it's because of the nervous system. That's the only thing being affected. But in humans, like, there's a whole um, disease dedicated to the heart effects of a thiamine deficiency. It's called beriberi, or wet beriberi, I'm pretty sure. Um, and no one's looked into that in fish before. And it's like, well, that can be a major contributing factor to their survival, right? The heart is extremely important. So, and that's, that's kind of why I looked into that. I've, there's a lot, been a lot of research on the nervous system already. Um, so I wanted to ask with this research, it might be a hard question, so it's okay if you don't, um, 
know the answer, but I was wondering like, what's your research and you're seeing these positive results and we see the decline in salmon in Lake Ontario. How do you kind of want to like implement this into policy and things like that? Or are you hoping to be? That's an awesome question. Um, so as part of my research, I'm looking at comparing between several strains of lake trout. Mm -hmm. um, and these strains that I'm comparing between happen to be the two that are most often stocked into these lakes. And there's a reason why we might suspect them to differ in their response to this thymine deficiency. Um, one strain has existed with um, these invasive prey species for hundreds of years, and the other has not. So we're thinking that that's a uh, strain that's existed with these species for so long might have an adaptation that'll allow them to su survive better. So what we're hoping to see is that that strain can better survive while the other one cannot. And we can say, okay, you should be um, stocking more of this strain because it might survive better. I guess um, natural follow-up is like, are the people who make those decisions like looking at this type of research? Like how do, how do you know they're going to take it in, into consideration? Is that not, or is that outside of the purview of a, of a grad student? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Well, I hope that they look at it. I'm in touch with um, a few folks with the MNR, um, mostly through an internship that I did this past summer. Um, and I'm hoping that I can share whatever I find with him and, and he can kind of spread that, um, that knowledge around. And who knows, it's, um, it's just one of those things that I, that I, if I find something really interesting that can make an impact on um, Lake Trout and Great Lakes, I just hope that it's, it's taken up by policy. Can you tell us more about that, about the, about the inter internship or I guess like, you know, not, not all programs, uh, well, not all programs are even research-based, but even those that are research-based, not all of them um, include some time as an intern. So how, how does that um, fit in your program? Yeah, good question. Um, so I, so it doesn't really fit in the program. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't really part of the program. Um, on a bit of a side um, thing. So I'm part of a, a separate program called FishCast. And this is um, a government funded program designed to train fisheries biologists. And kind of as part of that program, you do an internship. Um, so I managed to get in with the Ministry of Natural Resources up in Owen Sound and, and working up further north as well. Um, and I was actually able to convince them to help me with my research at the same time, which was awesome. So I was able to um, steal some heart samples from the lake trout that we collected in gill nets throughout the summer. And with that, I haven't uh, completely set this in stone yet, but I'm hoping to compare the hearts of these lake trout um, and like kind of relate it to their muscle thymine levels to see if fish with lower thymine in their muscle um, have change in heart morphology which is something i'm looking at in the lab as well okay uh i wanted to ask you because i don't know maybe you would know because you've been working at lake ontario and stuff but you were saying there was a lot of overfishing of salmon is that is are there regulations in place for like commercial fishing and things like that or even like like domestic fishing i guess yeah yeah so for lake trout there wasn't for a very long time and that's kind of why they decreased in abundance so much because everyone could just go catch hundreds of them and it was fairly easy to catch hundreds of them and, and that's it but um yeah there has been a lot of regulations put in place for not just lake trout fishing but fishing in general 
Um, and I, I don't know if there's slot sizes in Lake Ontario or if there is in certain areas of Lake Ontario, but a slot size is basically, you can only keep fish within a certain size range and everything outside or everything above or smaller than that size range, size range has to go back. Um, so there's slot sizes that are being put in place in some areas and then also just catch limits. So you can only have, or you can only keep so many fish. I have a sneaking suspicion that you had some familiarity with fishing before you started this project. <laughs> I'm wondering uh, what, what, what got you interested in uh, doing this kind of thing. Yeah, you, you nailed it. That's, that's basically it. I grew up fishing, um, not only on the Great Lakes, but well, mostly on the Great Lakes, but also in a lot of lakes kind of within Ontario. And th that's why I wanted to get into um, fish conservation. Like I really love, I really love this resource and I want it to continue for generations down the line. And it's a shame that humans have done such terrible things to a lot of ecosystems. And I just want to be able to do my part and and kind of bring them back. A little follow-up to that, because I'm curious. Uh, who got you into fishing? It was my dad. All right. My dad's a pretty hardcore fisherman, and for years when I was growing up, he would drag me out every time and, and just kind of fell in love with it. Now I can't stop fishing. That's all I look forward to every year. Nice. Within the limits, though. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Within the limits. That's right. Yeah. There you go. I guess um, uh, at some point when you're fishing, you have to I guess, is this sort of like in the culture of fishing that you, that you also wanted people to change? Like, hey, when you're going to fish, like maybe put some back. Like when you, you know, you, you, you caught one, that's fantastic, but you have too many for the day. So throw, throw a couple of them back or something. Or like, are there certain fish that you th should throw back and you don't? Like, is there a fishing culture lesson here? Yeah, I, I think so. And I mean, for the most part, fishermen are, are really respectful of the resource because um, they appreciate it a lot. It's, I mean, like recreational fishing, growing up, growing up with a bunch of, of fellow fishermen, um, there's a lot of respect for the fish out there. And, and generally that's, the rules are followed, but of course there's going to be bad eggs in the bunch that are keeping everything. And uh, yeah, that's like the, uh, you know, when people say like, oh, you've got to look out for no wastage and don't use like plastics, but like really like whether or not you do or don't use a plastic straw isn't going to make a difference. It's like the big manufacturers and factories are probably having a larger impact than your individual, whether you use a straw or fish, one extra fish or something. Right. Uh, so this might be pulling a little bit from my background, but I was going to ask you a question related to fish and uh, fishermen and science, because you're both a fisherman, I guess, and a scientist. But often there's like a, um, a dynamic, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, between what scientists say you should implement and what fishermen know about the area. Do, uh, so could you speak about a little bit on that? Like how would fishermen react if a scientist was like, oh, like I want you to do this and that? Yeah, I mean, if it was, if it was just me on, say on the shoreline fishing and I was just talking to someone beside me, like, hey, don't be doing this. They're just gonna, they're not gonna do anything, right? <laughs> it's their only, the only way, I think the only way they're gonna follow any rules is if it's written in hand. Like there's a book, a regulations book that comes out every year and it, it changes every year depending on how um, the populations of fish are doing. So that's kind of their their golden rule book that they follow. 
Oh, I did not know there was a no rule book that's in it. <laughs> I guess this makes me wonder uh, if if you're you know you you care about like the activism part of of with the helping the ecosystem and the fish and and helping people uh, continue to do this thing that you like doing, which is fishing. Um, do, you, do you picture yourself um, continuing to do this type of thing when you're done your degree here? Like, uh, where, do, where do you go from here? Yeah, so that's a good question. It's definitely something I've been thinking about um, over the last few years. And I definitely want to stay in the fisheries realm. Um, it'd be awesome to work as a biologist, um, staying around the Great Lakes, kind of continuing on the work that I've been doing in my master's. Um, but it'd also be interesting to shift gears and maybe focus on river ecosystems. It's something I've become interesting, increasingly interested in over um, recent years. Um, and I think it'd be awesome to get a job in consulting or something where I can you know, give all my knowledge and put all my knowledge into place about fish and, and contribute to their conservation. Excellent. Excellent. I mean, it sounds like you're uh, well positioned to do any of that. I mean, if I were any of those employers, I, I can't imagine anyone better suited. Um, I wouldn't hire me. I would hire you. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, you've got the passion as well. I think that's probably the main thing there. You know, you can tell that you care and that's what I think um, people should be doing with their life. They should be doing a job that they care about and you care a lot about this and you put your mind to it. So um, good job on learning all this stuff and doing a, what sounds like a really um, well-executed study, you know, sometimes it doesn't go so, um, swimming smoothly. Swimming, <laughs> nice. Swimmingly, exactly. <laughs> words. Nice. Um, well, uh, as much as I'd love to hear more about fish and fishing and ecosystems and how we can do better, uh, we're just running a little bit out of time here. So I want to thank you for coming on GradCast today, Peter. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame. My co-host was Sharan. Uh, we've been speaking with Peter Baker. Um, and this episode was produced by Emily Hutchinson. Um, if you want to get involved with the show, uh, you want to contact us, you can email us, gradcast at sogs.ca. You can also Follow us on the social medias all over the place, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Gradcast Radio. Um, you want to listen to us on the radio. Uh, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. That's here on campus. You can find all our previous episodes on our website, gradcast.ca, and any podcast app, you know, Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, whatever, and select episodes in video form on YouTube at Gradcast Radio as well. Thank you for listening. Happy night.